0: Bless me as I speak your word today. Strengthen me to declare the excellent things about Christ. Bless these people, your people, that they may hear and believe in your risen Son. Well, back when I was in college, I was part of a student ministry called Christians in Action. And our aim, like a lot of campus ministries, was to share the gospel with our fellow students... Study the Bible, help each other grow in our walks with Jesus, learn how to serve the Lord as newly-fledged young adults, that sort of thing. Well, in my senior year, I was president of this group. And during my senior year, we hit a patch of really tough sailing. A number of people who had previously been part of the fellowship decided to leave it, and then they began to speak ill about us and our group all around campus. And that was a really rough time. I can remember one particularly difficult incident. And as we were thinking about how best to respond, I can remember sitting around this, this <laughs> half-lit dorm lounge for a leadership team meeting. I think it was in the basement of this dorm. It was me and my campus minister, Ben, the, camp, the, the staff worker, and the other guy who was on the exec with me. We're trying to think how to respond. And I I was just feeling gutted at this point. But Ben had been consulting with his supervisor. He was a veteran campus minister. I knew him well. His name was Bill. Really godly guy. Really wise. So we're in this leadership meeting in the dorm lounge. And Ben says to us, guys, Bill has a message that he wanted me to pass on to you. Well, our ears perked up because anything Bill's got to say is well worth hearing. And this was his message to us. Boys, I believe God is taking you through this sorrow because he's preparing you for even greater sorrow later on in your lives as you're faithful to serve him. Well, sheesh, (laughs) that was a doozy. It's actually super hard to describe to you how I felt as that thought washed over me. God is taking you through this sorrow so you can be ready to face even greater sorrow later on. It certainly didn't promise me quick relief from my current grief. And it held out the prospect of more intense griefs down the road. And yet I was comforted. Because it meant God was in this pain. And He was in this pain for my good. And I still didn't understand it. But I knew He was at work, I could trust Him. And, friends, the fact is that the Lord is sovereign over both prosperity and calamity, He is the one who brings times of plenty and times of hardship. This is taught all over the Scriptures. Number one, the Lord reigns. Which means He is at work in the joy and also in the sorrow. And number two, the Lord is good. Which means that in your deepest griefs, when your heart is broken and that you're at the most desperate place, He can still be trusted. Now what we're going to see in our passage today is that the Lord hears the cry of the desperate when they cling to him in faith. And he will deliver them. I'd ask you please to turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1, the book of Ruth chapter 1. If you're using the blue Bibles in the seats, you can find this on page 222. Ruth chapter 1. Let's read the first five verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons, and her husband. Okay, the opening words of this book set the whole context for the story. In the days when the judges ruled. This immediately clues us in that this story is set during a time of turmoil. It'd be like saying, Once upon a time in the Caribbean, in the golden age of piracy, right? That's that you would immediately have a picture of of a time of chaos, wouldn't you? If you heard a story that began like this, "Well, this is the same thing. What were the days of the judges like in Israel?" So I want you to turn back just one page or maybe it's just on the opposite page to the very last book of the ver- book of Judges. Judges 21:25. This defines this period. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see, after the conquest of Canaan and after the death of Joshua, a dismal pattern emerged that would last for generations. The people of Israel would rebel against the Lord and serve other gods. So then as punishment, the Lord would give them into the hands of their enemies from the surrounding nations and they would oppress them. And then in their distress, the people would cry out to the Lord to save them. And then the Lord would raise up a judge, a deliverer who would defeat the enemies and give them rest again in the land. And then what would happen? The cycle would begin again. Once again, they'd do evil in the sight of the Lord. And they'd serve other gods. And everything would start over, all over again. So this is a time of chaos. There's no king in Israel. There's no king to shepherd them. So they're all doing what's right in their own eyes. And sometime during this period, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. The harvest failed, food grew scarce, hunger came. Now there's two things to remember about famine. Number one, it's part of the covenant curses that we saw back in our study of Deuteronomy. If Israel will not keep faith with the Lord and will not obey his word, then the Lord promised to send drought and famine. And I have little doubt that that's what's happening here. This isn't some random famine. As if there were such a thing as a random famine. Famine. But there's also a second thing to remember. There's precedent, a lot of precedent in the Bible that famine often advances God's purposes for his people. Think about the famine that brought Jacob's family down to Joseph in Egypt, for example. So when we read that there's a famine in the Promised Land, I think we can assume that God is chastening his unfaithful people. But maybe we're also supposed to ask, What else has God got planned for this? Well, during this time of hunger and turmoil, one man has a plan. Elimelech, from the town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem, which means house of bread. Well, right now there's no bread in the house of bread. So he takes his wife and his two sons and he goes to sojourn down to the land of Moab, about 40 miles to the south and to the east. Now, Elimelech's not planning for this move to be permanent. He's just looking to relocate until the famine is passed. But he's doing what is right in his own eyes. And I, I, friends, I think there's some signs that this isn't a good move. What's he doing? He's leaving the promised land. He's taking his family away east into exile. Now, often in the Bible, east is the direction you end up going when you're headed away from God's presence. You end up going east. He's distancing his family from God's people and God's special place. And then think about their destination. They're going to Moab, the nation which is descended from Lot's shameful, incestuous union with his own daughter. Elimelech's choosing to settle among the Boabites, worshippers of the god Chemosh, who drew Israel into immorality and idolatry on their way up to the promised land. Moab tried to to snare Israel, to get them to stop following the Lord. Now, was this wrong of Elimelech to do this? Was it sinful? I don't know. I don't know. The text doesn't say. I'll tell you, it feels ominous. It feels like when you're watching a horror movie and someone decides to go down into the basement with a flashlight. That's what this feels like to me. I don't know if it's wrong. It feels ominous. Elimelech's family is escaping from the famine, but we might possibly wonder what's going to come from this. And we don't have to wonder for long. Verse 3 but elimelech the husband of naomi died and she was left with her two sons naomi's made a widow but she still has her boys the future might still be bright and the sons take moabite wives for themselves kilion marries orpa malon marries ruth and then the second crushing blow falls both of the young men also die We don't know anything about the circumstances. It's not really important. What is important is that now Naomi is truly bereaved. No husband. No sons. She's an aging widow, living in a foreign land far from her home, without any obvious means of support, grieving the loss of both her spouse and her children. And she has been made desolate. And she is desperate. Now, when we observe suffering like this, we have a tendency, don't we? We have a tendency to ask, Why, God? Why, God? Why did this happen? Did this desolation come about because Naomi sinned? Was this a judgment? on a family because he chose to leave the promised land? And you know what, friends? I don't know. Again, the text doesn't say. I'm not sure we can know. What we do know is that Naomi is bereaved. And number two, it is the Lord who has bereaved her. Naomi is bereaved, and it is the Lord who has bereaved her. That's going to be made crystal clear a little later in the chapter. It's the Lord has done this. But even as as Naomi is left in these desperate straits, there is a glimmer of hope. Read verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. She hears a report from home. The famine is over. The Lord has visited His people, which means He's taken notice of Israel's situation, and He has moved to act on their behalf. He's given them bread again. And the news of this gracious work of God comes to Naomi in the middle of her desolation. It's like the moment when the first Hint of dawn shows up against the deep darkness of the night. That first rosy glow. Right now it's coming about, I think, 4 to 15. It just begins on the horizon. It's coming. Well, this news stimulates Naomi to action. She decides she's going to return from the country of Moab. Now, I want you to watch for that word, return. We're going to hear that a lot in the rest of the chapter. So, with Orpah and Ruth, she gets up to return, to go back to the land of promise. So, read with me, please, now, verses 7 through 13. So, she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Judah. no, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So the three ladies set off down the road to return to Judah, and then Naomi turns to the young ladies and say, "Okay, it's it's time to go back now. You have no future if you come with me. You return." back to your mother's house where you have the hope of remarriage. And she knows they've been good to her. She knows they've been good to her sons. Now she wants good for them. And she thinks that she knows what that good looks like. And she asks God to give them rest in the house of another husband in Moab. it's interesting that she uses God's covenant name, Yahweh. She wants the Lord, the God of Israel, to give them rest and security in Moab. And she kisses them goodbye. Now, they don't go for this plan. They weep. They say, no, we don't want to return to our mother's house. We want to return with you to your people. And to understand Naomi's response to them, we have to remember that this custom of leveret, or brother-in-law, marriage. We saw it in the Torah series, didn't we? If a man dies childless, as their husbands did, if a man dies childless, then his brother ought to take the widow to wife, and then the first child of that new marriage is considered the child of the dead man. That does two things. One, it means the widow is provided for, and number two, the dead brother's name and his line are not extinguished in Israel. So when Orphan's Ruth say they want to stay with her, Naomi just lays the whole situation out for them, and she speaks out of, I think, at this point, a hopeless desperation. What is there for you if you go with me? I'm not going to marry again. And my body will not bear any more sons for you to marry. Girls, what are the chances that A... I get a husband soon. B, I conceive. C, I conceive a son. D, I conceive multiple sons. And E, you wait for them to grow up. Sweeties, it's not going to happen. Turn back. Turn back. And then her theology comes into play. The Lord's hand has gone out against me. And she's speaking accurately here. The Lord has brought her to this bitter moment. God's hand has been against her, and who can resist him? So let them not bind themselves to her in her calamity. Well, now we'll see how the two young women respond. Read in verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, kissed her goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. So one of the girls is convinced by Naomi's logic. Orpah thinks better of the plan to return with her to Israel. And she returns to her old life, to her people, and to her gods. She repents of her intention to be a pilgrim. And so she kisses Naomi and departs out of the story, presumably out of God's story. I don't know about you, but Orpah's choice makes me cold. Because it's so reasonable what she did. What did she do? She turned back to an easier life. Some of you are familiar with this book we're going to read at the Wednesday gatherings, The Pilgrim's Progress. You remember the character Pliable? Pliable, he's right, right at the beginning. He starts off with Christian along the road to the celestial city. He, he starts on the road to heaven. But right at the beginning of the journey, he experiences some hardship. And, and he considers the prospect that there's going to be lots more hardship on the road ahead. And he returns from seeking after Christ and goes back to his hometown. And it makes sense. Friends, could there be any of you here today who are considering abandoning your pursuit of Jesus for an easier life? Maybe you're not yet a Christian. And you're in the process of counting the cost of what it will mean to deny yourself and take up cross, and follow after Jesus. And right now, you might be thinking that the cost is too high. Maybe things weren't so bad be- with you before you started thinking about Christianity. And, and you're inclined to return. Or perhaps you're someone who professes faith, even has professed faith for many years, but the difficulties and the heartaches of life are causing you To waver. And there's a voice in your ear that's whispering, maybe it would be better just to turn back. Maybe it would be better just to turn back. See, Orpah's choice is a reasonable choice. But at the end of the day, there's no salvation in it. There's no salvation in it. Now let's consider Ruth's response. But Ruth clung to her. Verse 15. 15. And she said, Naomi said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. And we see that Ruth's response is one of desperation as well. Desperate faith. She clings to Naomi and she clings to Naomi's God. She begs her mother-in-law to stop trying to convince her to go back. She will not go back. And so she has chosen to unite the totality of who she is to Naomi. She is going to cleave to her. It's the same word that when Adam cleaves to Eve... Back in the garden, she's going to cleave to Naomi, cleave to Naomi's people, cleave to the Lord, her God. She even binds herself with an oath that nothing but death will induce her to part from this one whom she loves. So Naomi has little hope for the future. In Ruth's mind, that is totally irrelevant. All that matters is that her future be in this direction... It's a wild and beautiful, you might even say violent, passion of loyal love. Ruth's a desperate woman. Not desperate because of her circumstances, but her desperate cry as a foreigner, as a Moabite, as a Gentile, is to join herself forever to Naomi and to Naomi's people and to Naomi's God. And there's great faith here. She's leaving behind everything that she's ever known. To join herself body and soul to Israel's God. Now let's read on in verse 19. Now the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women, the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. That means pleasant. Call me Mara. That means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So the, the, this, the wanderer, the, the prodigal daughter, if you will, returns home to Bethlehem. But the townsfolk, when they see her, they look at her in amazement. They remember how she went out. And now what a difference there is now that she has come back. Can this really be Naomi? And she answers them with brutal honesty. She gives herself a new name. Because her old name, Pleasant, doesn't fit her anymore. Now the name Bitter suits her better so so call me mara she says and she pours out her heart to her old neighbors because the lord has emptied her she returns from her exile bereft of husband and sons and the lord has given her a very bitter cup to drink he stood as a witness against her he's brought her low now what is she saying with this speech Is this an angry outburst from someone who's murmuring against God? It could be. It could be. I don't want to just totally discount that possibility. But I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced that it is. See, there is desperate lament, but she doesn't misrepresent the Lord here, or call Him unjust. It's different from like the the grumbles of the children of Israel where they say, the Lord hates us, He's brought us out here to kill us. Right? This is different. Everything that she says is actually true. So she may simply just be acknowledging that all of her sorrows have come from His hand. We hear many similar things in the cries of the psalmist, don't we? Or listen to these words from Lamentations chapter 3. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. That's not an unfaithful cry necessarily. That doesn't have to be anger. That can just be deep anguish of soul. And it's still oriented toward the Lord. See, Naomi's grief is real. Her lament makes sense. She doesn't take some false comfort in a lie that says, well, God didn't intend for that to happen. He didn't know that was going to happen. He just wasn't in control when the world came crashing down around me. Because guess what? That's a lie. God is in control all the time. And sometimes in His sovereignty, He brings us under severe trial. And sometimes the grief is crushing. Some of you here know that. Others of you will one day know that. And sometimes, maybe often, We won't understand what the Lord is doing. But in our desperation, what will we do? Will we fall on our faces and acknowledge that God is great and that God is good? And will we cry out to Him in our sorrows? Because even though we may not understand, He is working out his good plan. And even in the desperation, there is hope. Hope for a harvest. I want you to read, finish up the chapter, verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. See, there's hope. Is this situation better yet? Not much. I mean, they're back in Bethlehem. That's something. But there's still two widows. One of them is a stranger and a foreigner. They have just about nothing. But the Lord is moving. It's the barley harvest. He's preparing a harvest. Now, here's the question that I think this first chapter of Ruth poses. How will the Lord respond to those who are desperate? There's a lot of desperation in this this chapter. Because the truth is, God's people are often in deep distress. And that is not despite God's purposes, it is because of God's purposes. This is not particularly difficult to prove, First, you can easily see it from the experience of God's saints throughout biblical history. Just think of the depth and wealth of sorrow and anguish that was experienced by Joseph, Job, Jeremiah, Paul. It wouldn't be hard to name about a dozen more. God's people are often in deep grief and anguish. Secondly, because we have it explicitly stated that it is God's will for his people to go through times of suffering. Here's just a few. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You seek to live godly in Christ Jesus? Check it's going to come if it hasn't already. Romans eight, sixteen and seventeen The Spirit Himself bears witness with our Spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. The suffering is necessary to gain the inheritance. Or Hebrews twelve six through 8 For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all are participants, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Suffering is actually... For believers, is one of the marks of their sonship. See, brothers and sisters, God's plan is to get you to heaven. And that plan necessarily involves suffering. He is going to take you through trials and heartaches and griefs because He is in the process of saving you. And you can trust Him that his plan is perfectly calibrated for you particularly. Your suffering is not random. It's not like God's a cafeteria worker who just slops it out kind of randomly. You have precisely in your life what God knows you need in order for you To get to heaven. You can trust him. He knows what you individually need. There's not one pang that is needless. There's not a single tear that is wasted. The psalmist says, You have kept count of my tossing. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Yeah, they are. Our griefs, our tears. God knows them all. He brought you into them all because He needed to. So when the night is dark and your grief is great, you can trust your Heavenly Father because He is in there in the pain. And so you can cry out to Him in your desolation, in your desperation, because He hears the cry of the desperate and He will deliver you. How do we know? How do we know that this is necessary, that this suffering is necessary, and that when we cry out to him in desperation, he will hear us, because he heard the cry of his own son? See, beloved, this is a great mystery, but Jesus needed to suffer. Jesus needed to suffer, and not just for our sakes. He did need to suffer for our sakes. He needed to suffer for his sake. Hebrews says that God perfected the author of our salvation through sufferings. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. Now, how can it be that Jesus, the sinless, holy, spotless Lamb of God, needed to be made perfect by learning obedience through suffering? I don't know. But apparently He needed to. Apparently that was necessary for Him. And if suffering was necessary for Jesus, then it must surely be necessary for us as well. It is part of the program. And so when Jesus was on the cross and He had the bitter, bitter cup that His Father had mixed for Him as He bore the wrath of God for the sins of His people, He cries out in desperate lament, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? And then how did the Father respond to His desperate Son? Well, actually, He didn't answer Him instantly, did He? Jesus had to endure. He had to wait. He had to endure the suffering to the very end. He had to drink that bitter cup all the way down to the dregs. He had to wait. He had to trust. He entrusted Himself to the One who, who would judge him righteously. And so he cries out again. What's the last thing he cries from the cross? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Does he turn away from from the Father at that moment? No, he turns toward him. He entrusts himself to him. He commits himself to him. And that is the desperate cry of faith seen in our, our wonderful Lord Jesus. Who is our pattern? And the Father heard his cry and delivered him out of death. Not delivered him from death, delivered him out of death. So, beloved, because the Lord heard the cry of his desperate son and delivered him, we can know for an absolute certainty that he hears our cries as well. And he will ultimately deliver us. Now, we may have to wait. And there are some griefs where we will not see His deliverance until the day of our resurrection. But even as we wait, even if our hearts are breaking, we can entrust ourselves to Him. We can cling to Him knowing that He is at work to save us. And that a harvest time is coming. So right now, in the middle of the pain, we can say, The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now what about those of you who are yet, at this time, still outside of Christ? And who don't yet belong to Jesus? Haven't yet put your faith, entrusted himself, clung to him? How do you need to respond to this word? Well, I'd argue it's pretty clear This chapter for you is a call to faith. You need the desperate faith that Ruth demonstrates. Because like her, you are a stranger and a sinner and an outsider. You currently have no portion in the Lord and in His salvation. But there is someone who you can cling to if you want in. And you can, in your recognition of your desperate condition, you can go to Jesus you can go to Jesus right now and follow His feet and cry out to Him for mercy and say, Jesus, take me with you. Let me follow you. Don't turn me away. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. And if you do this, if you will cleave to Him and join yourself to Him by faith, uniting your destiny with His, then He will deliver you. He'll deliver you from your sin. He'll deliver you out of death. He'll deliver you from hell. He will make you His own. And this is the promise that there is for those who are His own. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, powers, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Cling to him. Cleave to him. Be desperate for him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I don't know what my brothers and sisters bring to the table today. I know my own hearts, joys, and griefs. Lord, help us to trust ourselves to you. Help us to cling to you. Help us to recognize our sufferings are your perfect prescription for us as you are conforming us to the image of your beloved Son. And so, Lord, as we cry out to you, let us cry out to you in faith, turning to you, loving you, clinging to you, cleaving ourselves to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.